So please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 21. We've moved to the next chapter. Acts chapter 21. That's what we're going to be reading from this morning. And before we start in the text, I want to give the kids a chance to find some bingo pictures while I explain what we are going to do with this passage this morning. There, there are several things, okay, that are happening in today's scripture. And so we're going to be going through it. We're going to be looking at a map. Uh, we're going to be making some, some comments throughout. But we're focusing on one section in particular for the main thrust of the sermon. But, but it, it's going to take us a few verses to get there. Okay? So I ask you, stick with me through the, this faster-moving narrative part uh, at the beginning, because I, I, I'm telling you, it will be worth it. Okay? And also, I want you all to know, I'm strongly considering coming back next week and doing a topical message based on one particular sentence. It may not be next week, but I'm thinking about this. Um, I'm not fully convinced of that yet. We'll see, but um, I'm, I need a little more time, I think, before touching on this. So we'll see. Anyway. Uh, we're going to start out with the return leg of Paul's third missionary journey, and we're going to go from there. So let, let's just ask the Lord once again to guide us, and we'll, uh, then we'll get, we'll get started. Father God, I thank you so much for this church family. I thank you, Father, for the, the blessing of being able to, uh, to speak your word to them through the power of your spirit. God, I thank you for um, the fact that you have blessed us as a church with one another. This is such a loving and warm congregation. Uh, it's great to see people that barely know each other uh, just getting connected. And, and Father, uh, we know that we are one in Christ. And we ask, Father, this morning that you will help each one of us to be fully focused so that we can come away with something great from your word. And God, we're, we're covering a pretty good amount of ground this morning. So I just pray that you'll help it to be uh, beneficial to everyone here and that we, we don't forget the things that you want us to remember. I pray that when we go to lunch today that we're not uh, just, you know, talking about just, you know, other things. Help us to still be, be thinking about your word and why it matters and how we apply it today. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting in verse 1 of Acts 21. I'm actually going to pull that out right here. Acts 21, verse 1. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come, to the, to, we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed to Tyre, or that may be Tyree, I'm not sure. Um, you may have noticed that, that Paul, uh, while, while he's been going through his, his various treks, there's been a lot of third-person narrative. Uh, Luke is writing, and he says, Paul did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. Here, he goes back to uh, writing in the first person. He says, we, again. And it's possible that he had been accompanying Paul during all these previous passages, um, all the way back in, like, I think chapter 16, verse 10, or something like that, is where he starts using we. But uh, we don't know. Maybe he temporarily stayed with some other Christians somewhere along this journey, and then when Paul got back to Miletus, he rejoined the crew. Either way, what we're about to be reading here is once again a firsthand account. Okay? So just bear that in mind. This is an eyewitness account. Um, and one other thing of note here is, is 
the phrase, when we had parted from them, is actually a really, uh, it's a tame way to interpret the Greek. Uh, the Greek would be better translated, when we had torn away from them. And I like that. I like that rendering. When we had torn away from them, it's a reminder of just how greatly these Christians loved one another. You know, that they were clinging to one another and struggling with this idea that they would never see Paul's face again, at least not on this side of heaven. And I think that's a good example of the kind of familial love, family love, that Christians are supposed to have toward one another. I think that's powerful. But anyway, with regard to the trip itself, we're going to take a look at the map here. Um, you, you can see kind of the area where, uh, where it, it's, it's outlined sort of in, in dark blue. That's kind of what we're talking about in just this passage that we read. They started at Miletus. You remember in chapter 20, Paul meets, second half of chapter 20, Paul meets the Ephesian elders there at Miletus. And then they continue on down uh, from Miletus. They come down to Rhodes, and then they go to the Patara place, and then they go all the way down here to Tyre. And so that's a, a really long you know, really long journey there by ship. Um, so he's kind of covering a lot of ground really fast. Um, and as they were headed back to Jerusalem, it, it doesn't look like they were doing a lot of visiting or evangelizing. It's just trying to get where they're headed. Because remember, Paul wanted to get back in time for uh, Pentecost. So anyway, they landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Now, in, in the ancient world, this is kind of what would classify as a, as a layover. You know what I mean? Like, we might get stuck for a few hours in an airport. They would get stuck for a few days, sometimes longer than that. Um, but apparently, Paul and his friends, they, they went and found believers, and then they were relying on, on the hospitality of these believers in these places. So they're able to stay a week with people that may not have known them that well, but certainly knew them, at least knew them by reputation. And they had a similar reaction to Paul's mission, okay? Luke says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, this is potentially confusing, the way that Luke writes here, and so I want to kind of clear it up um, just really quickly. When it says that they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem, and it says they were doing it through the Spirit, that is apparently not to be understood as a command on behalf of the Holy Spirit. Okay, God wasn't telling them one thing through, you know, speaking through the Holy Spirit to them to tell Paul one thing while speaking to Paul through the Holy Spirit and telling him something else. God doesn't do that. Okay, so they weren't giving Paul uh, contradictory instruction through the same Spirit that was leading him to go to Jerusalem. Rather, the Spirit had revealed to believers the risk that Paul was taking and then what was going to be awaiting him when he got to the holy city, right? Because they knew of the danger. They knew that he was taking a huge risk, and they all loved Paul, and so they're begging him not to go. So that's when he says that they were you know, telling Paul through the Spirit, essentially. That's what he's talking about. Uh, so Luke continues, When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Now again, we're, we're shown the extent of to which people appreciated and cared for Paul and for his his people, and their whole families escorted him and his crew to their ship. I think that's really neat. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to each other. And this is another very powerful moment. I know we, we talk about Joyson a lot um, from this pulpit, um, but I, I just want to 
say, these goodbyes in Acts kind of remind me of dropping him off at the airport. And I know that may seem a little weird uh, to say that, but both of the times that I've dropped him off, one of them was back before COVID, it was uh, sometime in 2019, and then this past time, back in November, we had both times just an awesome time of prayer on the road while we were traveling to the airport. We just pray about whatever the Holy Spirit was giving us to pray about. And it was really powerful. And then when we get to the, to the gate, I, I would embrace him, and, and he would just cry. And he would tearfully say, thank you for your love. And both times this happened. And next time he comes, I want some of you to come with us to the airport. I'm serious. Because I want you to say goodbye to him with me. Because it was so, it's such a powerful thing. And I want to have that Pauline moment for him. And I'll bet some of the folks that are watching would probably find that a powerful witness too. You know, if they're observing people coming and gathering around someone and laying hands on him and praying. Anyway, then we went on board the ship and they returned home. So where'd they go next? Luke gives us that info. Uh, when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we stayed at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And again, they, they probably had an amazing time of fellowship, but we don't get a lot of detail this time. On the next day, we parted, departed sorry, and came to Caesarea. We're going to look at the map again here. Um, so... This is just a, a short journey here by comparison, still a long way when you're talking about going on foot. But um, they went from Tyre uh, down to Ptolemaeus, and then they went to Caesarea. And Caesarea, these are three port cities. And then they went in, and then, of course, Jerusalem down there is circled in the yellow. Um, that's the last leg of the journey. They haven't done that leg yet, but this is the last time you're going to see the map uh, for this journey, so I just wanted to explain that. So uh, anyway, they came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. Now, we ought to remember Philip. Philip was a pretty famous guy early on in the book of Acts. When it says he was one of the seven, that's referring to the original seven deacons that were first ordained by the church in Jerusalem. This is all the way back in Acts chapter 6. Okay, Some of you guys may remember this, but this was like two years ago that we discussed this. So, um, Do you remember why those... Those guys were necessary, those deacons? Food service. Food service, right. Food service. The elders said that their job, their, their focus, their primary ministry was ministry of the word and of prayer. And so they made the comment, you know, it is not for us to wait on tables. And I used to think about that a lot when I was a waiter because I was waiting on tables. And it's just kind of a, it was a bizarre way for them to phrase it. But it, it kind of stuck in my head. Um, there's one job specifically, or two jobs, and that's prayer and ministry of the word that the elders of the church are supposed to handle. That is supposed to be their main focus. Okay? And that is why churches have deacons, have ministry leaders. It's to do the other things in the, in the church, the, the more practical things, so that things run smoothly. And uh, I, I find that to be something that often gets conflated. They get mixed up, especially in small churches. We tend to, you know, elders end up doing uh, deacon things. Sometimes deacons do elder things. Um, there is a reason that there are offices that God kind of set out there. I'm not going to talk about that a lot today. I wasn't even part of the notes here. It's just something I wanted to, to throw out there. It, it was to take up the burden 
of the, the pastoral leaders regarding practical ministry within the church. Remember, the word ministry means service, literally. Okay? And the leaders are trying to keep prayer and ministry of the word as their top priority. And so the day-to-day -day stuff was, was threatening their ability to do that. And so they ordained and appointed some deacons. Literally, that word, again, means servants or ministers. They appointed them to take care of the other matters. Now, that's Philip as one of those seven. He's the first one named, in fact. Then in chapter 8, I love his story, he's apparently the first Jew after Pentecost to go to Samaria as a missionary. Now, that was a big deal. You remember when Jesus went to Samaria, we've been watching The Chosen, some of you might remember that. When Jesus went to Samaria, the disciples were all like, oh, why would you do such a thing? You know, it, because Jesus is, is a missionary. He's telling people about himself as the Messiah. And it's the same thing. Uh, we have Philip going into, into Samaria as the first Jew to tell the Samaritans about Jesus after he died and was raised from the dead. So that's huge. I don't think we always recognize how big of a deal that was to go minister to the Samaritans. We talk about the Gentiles. Yeah, that was a big deal too. This is the first kind of surprising, um, well, I guess probably having fire on your head and speaking in tongues was surprising, but you know what I mean. This is probably the first um, thing that, people, that blew people's minds. What? The Samaritans are hearing about this? This is amazing. So in chapter 8, we see that, and then later in the same chapter, we come across this story of him evangelizing the Ethiopian eunuch, which is absolutely one of my favorite stories in the New Testament. And part of the reason is just how God takes him away after he finishes what he's there for, right? God, like, spirits him away to the next place. But he comes and he finds this Ethiopian eunuch. Guy just happens, it's one of those God incidences, right? Just happens to be reading Isaiah 53 when Jesus, excuse me, when Philip walks up next to his chariot. He says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, how am I, how am I going to understand this unless somebody explains it? Which is, if you get a door that's that open, I'm telling you folks, you better step through it, okay? So he ends up up in the chariot. He's talking to him, shares the gospel with him. Guy goes, well, you know what? There's water right there. How about if I get baptized? Because he believed. That's what you ought to do. As soon as you believe, you ought to get baptized. So they take him the water. He gets baptized. And, and then Philip gets spirited away, and this Ethiopian eunuch goes off, and he ends up being the main proponent of the gospel in northern Africa. It's pretty awesome. Anyway, so... You talk about a guy who was very in touch with the Spirit of God. That's Philip. Okay? So Paul and the rest of his entourage went to Philip's home and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Now, guys, I was thinking about this passage. Y'all know I don't believe in coincidence. That's why I always put the air quotes around it. Um, I listened to a sermon, it was last week as I wrote this, so it was actually the week before last, by a preacher I have a lot of respect for, and this text was a prominent feature in the message. And because it's not, it's not part of the main point today, I'm just going to address it briefly right now, but I think there may be a topical message in the works um, to kind of discuss this point soon, so just stay tuned, but bear with me. It's interesting to note, Philip had four unmarried daughters, that means they weren't teamed up with a husband, okay, who all prophesied. Now, to prophesy meant then, and it means today, to do one of two things, either to 
foretell, as in the future, or to forthtell, meaning to speak the word of the Lord. And this was clearly not considered scandalous in the first century church, as we can see from two different angles. First, we know this because of the extreme piety of their father. Everybody knew Philip. And Philip had four unmarried daughters that prophesied. But also there's the fact that Paul and his people chose to stay with them. That showed that this wasn't considered inappropriate. Okay, Now, we don't have any evidence at all that they were involved in leading the church, spiritually or otherwise. I mean, the, these daughters. But we do have evidence that they were gifted in this manner by the Holy Spirit of God and were likely encouraged to exercise that gift in the proper context. Okay, Now, that's all I'm going to say about that right now. But I want it to plant some seeds of thoughtfulness. All right, we're going to continue, starting in verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Since Agabus here is called a prophet, not a false prophet, and we have no evidence of false prophecy, we could probably assume even without reading ahead that what he says is true, right? I mean, that that doesn't sound like a happy prophecy, though. (laughs) I mean, it's a little scary, right? So what was their reaction? Well, it says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Why? Why? Because they're viewing it through the lens of their desire to keep Paul safe. Now, is that sinful? No, not intrinsically. We should want, you know, our our people to stay safe. But let's keep going. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For not, I am not only ready to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, once again, good Christian people are trying to talk Paul out of going to Jerusalem, and he's not worried about himself. You remember the speech he gave the elders uh, that were there at Miletus? He told them he he doesn't consider his own life of any account. In fact, he's convinced that he is obeying God's will to go to Jerusalem. So Luke writes, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Now that's an incredible word right there. Let the will of the Lord be done. To your friend who just said, I'm ready to die for Jesus. Part of the reason it's so powerful is the fact that I I think all of these Christians believed what Agabus had said. They, they, They thought, their dear friend and mentor really is going to be arrested. He really is going to be turned over to the pagan authorities. And the outcome for that was surely grim based on on what they had heard. And of course, they didn't understand how God was going to use it to his glory, but they knew it was going to be a bad thing for Paul, what he was going to go through. Even so, they, they were resigned. They accepted whatever the Lord's will happened to be because they chose to trust him. And it's a pretty amazing thing to consider the difference 
between how Paul's disciples reacted to this news and how Jesus' disciples reacted to this news. And I'm going to explain what I mean here. When you consider how the 12 responded to Jesus talking about his impending arrest and his crucifixion, right? You remember how Peter and the others, first of all, they, the first they refused to believe it. They kind of ignored him the first couple of times. And then when they hear him say it again and again, finally, Peter, he's had enough, right? He doesn't believe it. He takes Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus. And Jesus tells him, back off. Get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. You know? And then later, they, they initially fought against the captors. Remember when, again, it's Peter, old blustery Peter. In comes uh, the, the uh, Malchus, you know, the servant dude, and, and Peter, with fantastic aim, manages to somehow chop off his ear. You know? So Jesus... Let me fix that for you, you know, puts it back on. And they're like, well, what now? Jesus won't even let us fight. So they just run. So they go through all the stages of grief, you know, before they even, they go through the anger, they go through the, you know, the, the depression after that. They did not handle that very well. But there's a difference when you see an emotional response that's tempered not only by faith, but by the Holy Spirit of God. Because at that point, when the, when the disciples were refusing to accept, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. I just want to point that out. The Holy Spirit gives us the ability to accept God's will in a way that the fleshly mind cannot and will not. Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. It's funny, whenever you see the map, they almost always say up when they're going down. <laughs> I mean, as far as, you know, seeing the, it, it's just funny to me. I guess north is different, you know, in the way that they've, they've viewed the world. Is that how it was? It could be. It is the elevation? Okay, so they say we, we went up, and we look at it, and we go, but that's, but that's down. Um, they didn't have the same understanding of geography and all that, they, they viewed things differently. So don't let that throw you. I just think it's funny. It's, it's something that's stood out to me. Anyway, this showed when they, they go to Jerusalem, they followed through on their faith, right? They weren't just giving lip service to their faith. And then Luke adds, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh uh, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Rather than trying to hide from the authorities, right, trying to sneak into town, the Christians just accompanied Paul in mass right into Jerusalem. I think there's certainly quite a bit that we can learn from this passage, but for the sake of finishing on time, uh, we're going to try to condense it to three main points, and all these points have to do with God's will. Okay, so the rest of this message should convey three things that Christ followers need to understand about God's will, and, and all of them are from these last three or four verses. Okay? Firstly, in the life of any believer, God's will may require great sacrifice. In the life of any believer, God's will may require great sacrifice. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer for most of us if we've grown up in church, you know, because in the last, you know, however long you've been alive, you've heard about Jesus' commands, you've heard about the things that his disciples had to go through, 
but it's become really common in just the last century or so for people to, to ignore what the Bible very clearly states about the cost of following Jesus. Some preachers will even go so far as to say that a person who follows Jesus is going to receive God's favor in their health and God's favor in their wealth, their bank account, and God's favor in their job and their relationships. And, and, but this is simply not what the New Testament teaches. It's not there. These type of, of, of false doctrines are, are usually based on Old Testament promises specifically to Israel, okay? And when they are in the New Testament, when they take passages out of the New Testament, it is always a violation of the context to make it into a health and wealth type thing, okay? Always. Teaching like this can lead people astray from the truth. Jesus himself made it extremely clear in several of his statements in the Gospels, but maybe the most famous is in Matthew 16. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whatever, whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. And if we're really being fair to the text, it's obvious that we are not guaranteed to prosper in this life by any worldly standard. Instead, we're told very clearly that we're going to share in the sufferings of Christ. And because of this, I think we can even change the word may to the word will. I think God's will will require great sacrifice. And that's for all of us. It's absolutely going to require great sacrifice on our part if for no other reason than the fact that we must subjugate our own will to His. Whether we like it or not, we're a pretty egotistical race. Human beings like to make ourselves the center of the universe, but guess what? We're not. But God is. And to place our will beneath his, it's that word hupotasso, to place oneself under, to submit to God's will. There's a sense in which that itself is a very great sacrifice. It's tough to do that. I know it. I have to do it too. And there are a lot of times that I would, I would rather say and do and think and watch and listen to and experience something that I know is outside of God's will for me because either His Word or His Holy Spirit tells me that that's the case. And by His grace, though, I can say this, thank God, thank God, it's gotten easier over the years to subjugate my will to His. We, we all have to experience that. That's part of your sanctification, is getting to that place where, where you learn to deny yourself and obey God's prompting. And I hope all of you are in that same headspace, honestly, because it, it, it's, it's great evidence. <laughs> if you're seeing yourself submitting to God, that is great evidence that God is at work in you in your sanctification. He's making you more like Christ. 
So be aware, brothers and sisters, God's will is going to require great sacrifice. And as a result of that, to follow his will, each of us needs to engage in mental preparation. We need to become mentally prepared because God's will is going to require that too. Um, I want to explain what I mean by that. When we look at how Paul responds to his beloved family in Christ, we don't see any wavering in the man. His mind's made up. He is going to follow where God sends him. He, He has already made it his life's habit to follow God's will. And practice makes progress. In fact, we we actually see a a cheerful sort of resignation, I feel like, almost a joy to his words, as well as there's a gentleness that's kind of born out of love for his fellow believers. We we can see he uses kid gloves even while he's chiding them. You know, he says, says, what are you doing? You know, weeping and breaking my heart. He's clearly feeling their emotions. And yet he wants them to see things the same way that he does, right? And then years later, he he writes to the church in Philippi that to live is Christ, to to die is what? To die is gain. That's that's a dude that sold out for Jesus. He wrote that from prison, by the way, if you didn't know that. (laughs) That is a guy that is completely sold out to Jesus Christ. And I think all of us would do well to become mentally prepared for whatever's on its way for us too. And that way, when it comes, we'll still be able to faithfully serve and worship Christ. We'll be ready. This is certainly true for for the various trials that are common to the human experience. You know, we, we think of infirmity, right? You get old, things start falling apart, right? You're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Mark. You know, what about disease, loss, Grief. You know, there's these these other painful experiences that we share with all of mankind, irrespective of of what you believe. You still deal with these things. But we should especially be prepared for the hatred of the world and the consequences of rejecting its warped perspective because the world wants you to see things the world's way. We are not called to see things the world's way. We're called to see things God's way. And we should expect to not be liked. That's hard for me. Some of y'all know this. I've asked for prayer from, from some good friends. For I call it, it's, it's fear of man. It's wanting to people please. Not wanting anybody to not like me. I know, if you know me, like, how could you even be worried about that? It's constantly, everybody loves you. No, I'm kidding. But you, <laughs> might be the other way around. <laughs> you should get used to it, Mark. But, you know, we, we should expect the hatred of the world. Jesus himself tells us this, you know, uh, in John 15. I'm going to give you a second to turn there. I want you to read this with your own two eyes, okay? Go to John chapter 15, and we're going to start in verse 18, all right? I'm going to read 18 through 20 here. Glad I didn't start because that wasn't it. Okay, John 15, he says, if the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, this goes back to that, that seeing things through 
the perspective of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Friends, did they persecute Jesus? They will also persecute you. And in case you're tempted to think this only applies to those dudes in the upper room at that time, let me tell you, Paul, when he was trying to, to encourage and to comfort at the same time as protege Timothy, he said this, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think that's pretty all-encompassing, don't y'all? Don't, don't y'all, all y'all? <laughs> all? All? I think he means all. So let me ask you, how many of you in here Raise your hand if you desire to live a godly life. Good, I'm glad, I'm glad we're raising our hands. We, we should desire to live a godly life. So if, if you raised your hand, maybe you're wondering, well then, where's my persecution? Right? I want to share an observation by, there's a commentator, a Puritan author, his name is John Gill. It's going to sound a little weird, because it's 17th century, and they, man, they were really fond of run-on sentences, I'm but, but it's worth it. Please, don't tune me out. Just listen. Here's what he says regarding persecution for those who desire to live a godly life. This is the common lot in certain case of all the saints in one shape or another. For though all do not suffer confiscation of goods, beating, scourging, imprisonment, or a violent death, yet all are more or less afflicted and distressed by wicked men and are subject to their reproaches and revilings, which are a branch of persecution. And that for professing Christ and living a godly life in Him and under His influence, and since such suffer as Christians and not as evildoers, and this is the common condition of the people of God in this world, it should not be thought strange, but should be cheerfully endured. Did you catch that? I mean, he's, he's pointing out it's not just about getting beat up or your home taken away. It's being miserable at seeing sin in the world around you and miserable to sin in your own flesh and hating it and wanting it to be excised from you. It's knowing that because you follow Christ, there's going to, people are going to dislike you. They're going to actively hate you. They will say bad things about you because of your obedience to Christ. That's part of the persecution. And by the way, that whole thing I just read that was all one sentence, and it wasn't even the end of the sentence, okay? There's, there's so many semicolons in this, guys. Anyway, uh, but, but his point is well taken. Okay? For those who are in Christ, we are going to experience some form of persecution or another because of Christ, even if it's not physical tor torture. It's going to be something. We all got to deal with something. Now, you're probably aware, at least those of you that have been around here a while, that, that potential persecution for the sake of Christ is on my mind quite a bit. Think about it a lot. We're seeing it happen in major ways across the globe. We're seeing it happen so far in minor ways here in the United States. We need to start right now mentally preparing for what is coming. 
including determining in advance what we're going to do in specific circumstances. Now, I'm not saying we should determine what to say, okay? Christ actually talked about that, right? When speaking to his disciples, he said, don't worry about what to say, okay? Should you be called to speak on behalf of Christ, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words, okay? When you're dragged before hostile men. However, it is good to plan ahead what we will do, how we will behave if we're ever commanded to renounce Christ, whether in word or in deed. Now, friends, it might not be that obvious, might not be somebody sticking a gun in your face and saying, renounce Jesus. We have lots of other opportunities to renounce Christ. It might be being told to lie in order to keep your job. Or it might be uh, trying to gain favor with others by going along with filthy talk or, or gossip. We have lots of opportunities every day to dishonor God. We need to be prepared to do what it takes to follow Christ instead of following in the way of the world. And when I was reading about this, I came across a really good article. I want to share this with you. Um, some of you may have seen uh, my post on Facebook, but it's, it's a, uh, an author. Her name is Asherita Siu. I don't know how to pronounce this. C-I-U, C-I-U. C-U, C-U, Choo-Choo, I don't know, but Asherita. I wanted to, to share with you all this practical list that she made of ways to mentally prepare for persecution. And I'm also going to paraphrase her elaboration on each point. First, she said, memorize Scripture. Memorize Scripture, and not just a few. Right? There's, there's a well-known passage in Psalm 119 about hiding God's Word in our hearts. There is a reason for that. Paper Bibles can be taken away. As one of my kids learned this past week, your phone can be taken away. <laughs> okay? But they can't steal away the word that's in your heart. It's implanted. It's internalized. You can't, you can't pull that out of me with horses. Memorize scripture. Secondly, she talks about setting aside time for fasting and prayer, she says, while asking the Lord to rid us, really, of any of his competition that resides in us, any, any idol that's vying for the throne in your heart. Ask God to get rid of it and look forward to the return of Christ. A third way that she says is, read the biographies of godly women and men, particularly those who have endured great loss and persecution for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of his gospel. Some of the examples you might think of are John Wycliffe, um, Martin Luther, more recently, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, the wife of, I can't think of his name right now. Just escape me, huh? Joe? Jim Elliott, thank you. Jim Elliott, the, the guy who was speared to death for trying to share the gospel with the, the South American Indians. She went back to that tribe that killed her husband and led them to Christ. We can be so encouraged by reading these examples, and they help us to stand firm in our faithfulness to the Lord. Fourth, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just really stand on this one. Get a subscription to Voice of the Martyrs. It's so easy to do. Look it up online. Voice of the Martyrs. They're based in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. I've been connected to them for years and years and years. Uh, a guy that I knew, um, really weird dude, really awesome Christian, he said, he said I'm going to challenge you. He said, go to this website and do the thing where it says uh, every month you're going to give money to send Bibles to Christians. He said, sign up for this. So I don't know how many years ago that was. I don't know how many Bibles have been sent, but I'll tell you what, it's not a big commitment, but people are, are 
being served to them. These are Christians in hostile countries that are being beaten and persecuted for their faith, and they're getting to have the Word of God in their hands because of Voice of the Martyrs and because of their Bible ministry. Look them up, please. And also, you can subscribe. It's free. They send you a little magazine that you can read about the plight of different people, and you can pray for them. They send you a prayer calendar that you can stick up on your wall. Good organization. Uh, See, yeah, okay, I already said all that. All right, okay. So uh, finally she says, pray that God would give you his perspective on suffering for his sake. Let's say that again. Pray that God will give you his perspective on suffering for his sake. That is a powerful sentence. And see, the thing is, we, American folk, especially in the 21st century, tend to think of all suffering as bad. Right? All suffering. But God doesn't. God does not see all suffering as bad. In fact, Scripture tells us it is through suffering that we learn obedience, which ties right into the Sunday school lesson this morning. And the rewards that we experience as a result of suffering for Jesus are far and away worth any difficulty that we have to go through. The word reward far outweighs what we have to deal with. And one of the passages that Miss Susu, or however you say it, she references Philippians 3, and I love Philippians 3. Paul expresses his desire to know both the power of Jesus' resurrection and his sufferings. And we forget, friends, how often God's word reminds us that suffering for Jesus is a blessing. In Luke's gospel, Jesus says, Rejoice and leap for joy when you're persecuted for my name's sake. Rejoice and leap for joy? You know, Click, you know what I mean? It, really? Yes, Jesus told us to. We should be excited when we're persecuted because that is a sign of God's favor. That is a sign of God's favor. It's not about how many times you have to go to the doctor. It's not about the size of your bank account. If you are suffering for Christ, that is a sign of God's favor period. One of the most profound and difficult texts in the New Testament is first, it's in 1 Peter 4. I'm going to give you a minute to turn there. That's the one, 1 Peter 4. This is the one that, uh, that Everett quoted earlier. I shouldn't, again, shouldn't be surprised when God does this, but I love it when he reminds us of the same passages at roughly the same time. 1 Peter chapter 4. Starting in verse 12, beloved, I love his phrase here, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I love this. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. How many of you want to have the spirit of glory and of God resting upon you? Yeah? I think it's something we should definitely be looking forward to. We should be excited about this. And yet, and yet I struggle with even the most minimal of suffering. 
Most of us do. Some of us are terrible patients. And I think the reason is easy to see. We, we take comfort for granted. And so because most of us live in relative comfort. And so, so we, we feel like that's how life is supposed to be. It's supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be comfortable. It's supposed to, supposed to, supposed to. It's not supposed to be hard. Mm, it's not what the Bible says. It's not what Jesus taught. And that's not the example that he showed us either. See, that's, that's the thing. It shakes our worldview when we suffer. And then sometimes we, we listen to bad theology that tells us Christians should never suffer, that it's never God's will. That is precisely the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The opposite. So don't fall for that, church. Don't be fooled by that lie that Christians should never suffer. God's will requires us to have sacrificial lives. We need to be in the right frame of mind to be prepared to glorify Him in whatever comes, okay? Whatever comes. Our last big point today, we're, we're getting there, guys. God's will is not that we should try to go it alone. God's will is not that we should go it alone. What is the very first thing that we read in Scripture is not good, according to God? For man to be alone. Very first thing is not good for man to be alone. And while, yeah, the context there is a little different. It's no less true here. The Bible has loads of one another passages that tell us how to relate to each other as believers with the full expectation that we're going to interact Right? In positive ways. We're supposed to have relationships with one another. Right? So when we try to forge our own path, you know, apart from other believers, we're either forgetting or ignoring the fact that we are Christ's. And as such, we have responsibility to each other. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, kind of. Paul said in Romans 12, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body of Christ and individually members of one another. So I want to encourage you, don't be deluded by this whole individualistic zeitgeist that's kind of permeated our culture right now. Even if you're one of those dudes that's inclined to go play Jedediah Smith out in the woods somewhere or whatever, you know, I understand that, that feeling, but you are not made to be that way. God did not make anyone to be alone. He made us to help one another. In fact, we are to bear one another's burdens. Right? You remember that passage? I think you hear it a lot. <laughs> we are to bear one another's burdens. That's not speculation. It's a direct command. Paul says when we do this, we are fulfilling the law of Christ. That's intense. Bear one another's burdens and in so doing, fulfill the law of Christ. That's a pretty bold statement, but, and if we put it in negative terms, one could argue that isolating ourselves, especially in times of difficulty, we are both disobeying this direct command, and we're preventing other believers from the opportunity to obey in our life. And so we are not fulfilling the law of Christ. So friends, this, this goes both ways. Those of us who don't want to get involved in the lives of others because it's just not convenient, we're just going to have to get over that. 
for the sake of, of, of being obedient to Christ. And, and for those of us that aren't inclined to reach out when we need help, we got to get over that too. We got to get over that because we're, we're stealing someone else's blessing. You know, that old, you know, oh, I don't want to be a bother to anybody. That has surely led to more pain and missed opportunity than we know. By the way, um, not only are we to bear one another's burdens, but let's also trust that Christ bears our burdens for us. Because that's very clearly what the Bible teaches. We need to be willing to ask him for help. Even when we, when we are completely alone from a human perspective, Jesus has not abandoned his own. He will never leave nor forsake us. Again, from 1 Peter, we read these words. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Boy, howdy, does he care for you. If you need proof, it's right there. Remember the old, the old saying, I asked Jesus, how much do you love me? And he said, this much. He cares for you. It was, it was he that ultimately bore our burden on Calvary, which is, it was what should provoke us to realize that we owe him everything. <laughs> all honor, all, all of our praise, all of our allegiance. He sacrificed his own will unto the Father's will so that by his death on the cross, we could receive forgiveness for our sins. And then by raising himself from the dead, and it's interesting because in some scriptures it says he raised himself, other scriptures it says God raised him because, hey, He's God. In, in, in coming back to life, we get to share in his resurrection life too. That's amazing. But we have to turn to him by grace through faith. And so the question is, what does that mean for you? Have, have, have you ever truly submitted to the will of God? Because if not, you can today. Have you ever fully submitted to the will of God? I'll tell you this, if you've not gone through the process of placing your faith in Jesus Christ, of confessing that faith and being baptized by immersion, of being a part of a body of believers and walking faithfully alongside them in your journey with Christ, take those steps. Don't miss that opportunity. Be obedient to Christ. When we make a, a habit of being obedient to Christ while it's as easy as it is, we'll make it much easier to be obedient when the time comes that it's no longer easy.